Well, please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. Now, as a reminder, the book of Luke is split into various subsections. This book began, as you may recall, with these infancy narratives, these birth narratives of both John the Baptist and Jesus. Luke then proceeded to narrate the public ministry of Jesus in the region of Galilee. And we are currently in that section, the public ministry of Jesus in the region of Galilee. But we are approaching the transition to the next subsection in chapter 9, verse 50, as Jesus will, now, will then begin his journey on to Jerusalem. So Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. Please pay careful attention, for this is the word of our Lord. And Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had, had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see them. And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away and go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them, then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, twelve baskets of broken pieces. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this evening. Well, as human beings, we naturally respond to external stimuli and events and circumstances that we encounter in this life. Now, some of these responses are 
deliberate. Think of a job interview. You think and plan about how you will respond to specific questions, while other responses are more spontaneous. My last uh, season of college basketball, our team made the uh, NCAA tournament, and we were lined up with the number one seed in our side of the bracket. And we were a big underdog in that game. And we ended up winning that game on a buzzer beater. I remember as soon as the ball went through the basket and the buzzer went off, one of our assistant coaches, out of great joy and excitement, swung his fist and ended up clocking one of uh, the bench players in the face. A spontaneous response to victory. Well, as you may recall, we are in this section of Luke's Gospel where we have witnessed Jesus' power and authority over many domains of life. We have seen Jesus' power and authority over disease, over death, over Satan and unclean spirits, over nature. But we've also witnessed many responses to Jesus' power and authority. Some of these responses have been positive. Some of these responses have been negative, while some have been somewhere in between. In fact, some of these responses have been deliberate, while others have been a bit more spontaneous. And today, in our passage before us, we are coming to the climax of these two themes, both the revelation of Jesus' power and authority, as well as the responses of the people to that uh, power and authority. And you'll see in this passage, Jesus revealing his power and authority in two ways. He first reveals his power and authority as he commissions the apostles to go forth on a missionary journey. And then he concludes this passage by revealing his power and authority by miraculously miraculously, uh, feeding the 5,000 men. And in between, we have the responses of the apostles and Herod. Thus, this evening, I'd like us to consider both of these revelations of Jesus' power and authority, as well as the responses of the apostles and of Herod to this power and authority of our Lord. So first, let us consider the revelation of Jesus' power and authority in the commissioning of these apostles. So Jesus... Uh, many, uh, a few chapters ago had called officially these, these 12 apostles. Uh, this was a motley bunch, not an impressive bunch according to worldly standards. But yet he had called them to be apostles nonetheless. And now here in our chapter, he summons these men before him. And he summons them so that he might commission them to go forth on a missionary journey. On this missionary journey, they are to do two primary two primary things. They are to preach the kingdom of God or the gospel, as it's uh, described in verse 6, and they are to heal, to heal those who are sick or diseased. And Jesus is assuring them that they go forth with his power and authority. Now there's much similarity with what we read here to the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 
or in Acts 1, verse 8, right before Jesus ascends into heaven and he hands over the baton of his mission to these 12 men to continue proclaiming and building this kingdom throughout the earth. So in one sense, this, this narrative, this, this passage, is foreshadowing that great commission which we are looking forward to. You also notice that Jesus tells his apostles not to take any extra supplies with them. Only the clothes on your back, the sandals on your feet, no extra. Depend upon the hospitality of the villagers and the villages to which you are going. But ultimately, depend upon God to provide what you stand in need of. To provide your daily bread, your daily provisions. As I mentioned, they're commissioned primarily to preach. To preach and to heal. To preach the kingdom of God and to heal. Now, what is the kingdom of God? We've encountered the kingdom of God a number of times already in Luke's gospel. Arguably, this is one of the greatest themes that are put forward in the gospel narratives. What is the kingdom of God? Well, put simply, the kingdom of God is the new creation. The new heavens and earth that we are looking forward to. That time when we will have resurrected bodies and all pain and suffering and tears will be put asunder. And the healings in the Gospels are very closely associated with this kingdom. This kingdom which, of course, isn't fully realized until the second coming. But Jesus in his first coming inaugurated this kingdom. Put this kingdom into motion as it were. And the healings are illustrative of the kingdom. Point to the kingdom. For instance, the healings foreshadow what Jesus will do at his second coming. When he will not only heal our bodies uh, temporarily, but permanently, as we, will have the as we will have resurrected bodies. These healings also are illustrative of what Jesus does for us inwardly in this age. Jesus gives us new hearts. He heals our hearts, as it were, from the disease of sin, at least in part. He regenerates us. So the healings and the preaching of this kingdom, they go hand in hand. And further, Jesus says that if you go into a village and this village doesn't receive you, they don't receive your message, they reject the gospel of God, you are to leave and, and shake off the dust from your feet as you leave that village. Now, it was common for Jews, as they left Gentile regions, to do this as a self-purification rite. Again, Gentiles were, were deemed unclean, and so Jews, after they left a Gentile area, would shake off their dust and, as, as a way to purify themselves. But here Jesus is turning that practice on its head and says, even if you go into a Jewish village, but yet they reject the gospel, regard them as unclean. Shake off the dust of your feet because they are still under the wrath of God. And we see the beginnings of this new covenant where Jesus is no longer working through an ethnic nation but through the people of faith, Jew or Gentile. We also see in, the, in, in this instruction by Jesus that the, the preaching of the gospel and implicitly comes with a threat. 
Yes, it, the preaching of the gospel extends that promise of the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life, but it also implicitly says that if you reject this message, you are still under the wrath of God. You're in Adam. So Jesus commissions, he commissions these 12 apostles to go forth in his name on this missionary journey. Now where do we see Jesus' power and authority at work building his kingdom today? Now of course Jesus uh, no longer commissions modern day apostles to go forth miraculously healing and, and, and preaching the kingdom. But rather we see Christ raises up ordinary men to serve as pastors, as elders, to preach this same message of the kingdom of God for the building up and advancement of his kingdom. This has been the method for the last 2,000 years. This is what Paul tells Timothy. Titus. The church will be built through the preaching of this gospel, this kingdom of God, through ordinary men. And it's this word that has the power, again, to heal, not in this age our external bodies, but our internal souls, to regenerate us, to sanctify us in this age, to conform us more to the image of Jesus. Let's now consider the apostles' uh, first response to Jesus' uh, power, revelation of power and authority. And now the text doesn't give us really anything explicit here, but it does seem to indicate that these apostles obeyed the commission. They went forth on the missionary journey. They trusted that Jesus would provide what they stand in need of. So they only took the, the clothes on their back, the sandals on their feet. They seemed to trust that his power and authority was going to be working through them as they went and healed and proclaimed this message. Thus we seem to have a positive response, at least initially here, by the apostles. They trusted Jesus. They obeyed this commission. I'd like us to consider for a moment our own response to Jesus' commissioning. Now, of course, he does not commission all of us to be special officers in his church, pastors, elders, or, or deacons. But he has called or commissioned all of us to be a faithful members of his kingdom here on earth, of his church here on earth. And of course, we are a church plant. And thus, technically, we are a mission work. I am a missionary, a domestic missionary. And if we want to see that this work continue to expand and, and become a, a particularized, self-sustaining church, we not only need future leaders, but we need faithful members who recognize the commissioning that Christ has, has given all of us. Faithful members who love God's word, who love one another, who desire to be lights to this community. Who are open and ready to give a defense of the hope that lies within them. So Jesus commissions all of us. All of us. Some as special officers, but all of us as, as faithful participants in his kingdom on earth. His institutional kingdom, that is the church here on earth. 
Well, next we see Herod's response. Herod's response to Jesus' power and authority. If you look in your Bibles at verses 7 through 9, uh, Luke includes this detail about Herod's perplexity over the identity of Jesus. He's hearing these reports of what Jesus is doing and about what his 12 apostles are doing. And he's confused. Who is this guy, this Jewish teacher from that small village of Nazareth? He hears the report of the crowds. Some say he's John, resurrected. Some say he's Elijah, or one of the other prophets of old, resurrected. And he thinks to himself, well, it can't be John. I myself am the one who beheaded him. I saw his lifeless body before my eyes. There's, there's no way it can be John, but he's, he's perplexed nonetheless. Who could this Jesus be? Now, in first reading, it may seem as if Herod is just innocently confused over the identity of Jesus. However, as one commentator has noted, I think there is an ominous note to this passage. It's not just that, it's not just that Jesus, I mean, Herod is confused over the identity of Jesus, he also seems to be opposed to Jesus. He doesn't like the reports that he's hearing. He doesn't like the, the popularity, the reputation that Jesus is gaining. In fact, there's a theme throughout the Gospel of Luke and even into Acts that when Herod comes into the narrative, it's usually negative. In Luke chapter 3, Herod, Herod is inserted into our narrative as he's the one who arrested John the Baptist, and based on our text this evening, beheaded John the Baptist. In Luke 13, in a few chapters from now, we, we learn that Herod is seeking to kill Jesus. And then in Luke 23, during the arrest and trial of our Lord, we learn that Herod treats Jesus with mockery and contempt. So Herod isn't just perplexed, confused, he's, he's opposed to Christ. He likely doesn't want an insurrection on his hands, a revolution. I believe this is instructive for us today to orientate our expectations between the church and culture, the church and, and state. Oftentimes, I think we, we desire that the, the church and culture will go in the same direction. And we can desire that, but we have no expectation that in this age the church and culture are going to be pursuing these great and grand common goals. Rather, we are told quite the opposite. In the Gospels, we see an opposition between Christ and Herod. Christ and uh, not only the Jewish teachers, but, but also the, the members of the civil state. We see the same going on in, in, the, in Acts. The church is a, a small, fringe community. The early Christians were reported by the, by the Romans as being cannibals because their reputation, they, they gained the reputation of eating the body and blood of Christ. They were accused of incense, incest because they referred to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, even if you were a married couple. They were accused of being atheists because they rejected the Roman gods. They were definitely countercultural. 
I think there's a common thread throughout history. The more, the more, uh, the more faithful the church has been to the truth of God's word, the more, more countercultural they've been. But on the flip side, the, the, the more unfaithful the church has been to the truth of God's word, the more they've, been, they've meshed with culture and have not been countercultural. I think this is a good orientation of our expectations. Christendom is not, is not our expectation. Well, we see one final response by the apostles again. Remember, the, the first response was positive. They obeyed Christ's commission. Now we see a negative response by the apostles. So in verse 10, we read that the apostles, they, they've gotten back from this missionary journey, and we learn that they tell Jesus everything that they've done. I'm sure they were quite excited. They preached the kingdom of God with power and authority. They healed individuals with diseases. They exercised authority over unclean spirits and demons. I'm sure they were zealous, excited to tell Jesus all that they had experienced. And Jesus takes these 12 men and they withdraw to a desolate place. And the crowd soon hears of this. And here's where Jesus is located. And they follow him out to this desolate place. And, and Jesus himself is preaching and healing. But the day is, is, is growing short. Evening is upon them. And the apostles are thinking to themselves, we are quite, we're a long ways away from any lodging, any place where these people can find food. We need to send them away before it gets dark. And Jesus responds and says, why don't you feed them? And the apostles, in a dumbfounded manner, respond, Jesus, we have five loaves and two fish. This is hardly enough food to feed us. How will we feed a crowd of 5,000 men? If there are women and children there, it's much, much greater than that. How are we going to feed thousands of people? See irony here? They just got back from this, this missionary journey where they saw the power and authority of Christ exercised through them in preaching and healing, casting out spirits. And yet they don't believe Jesus can provide bread for a big crowd. They don't believe Jesus could work through them to provide bread for this crowd. Don't we do the same thing? We can look back and remember all the, thing, all the ways in which God has been faithful to us. But yet when that new crisis comes, so quick to lack faith, so quick to distrust God's fatherly provision for us. Well, this then leads us to Jesus' final revelation of his power and authority as he, as he feeds this this crowd that's before him. If you look in your Bibles at, at verse 17, uh, we read that after he had blessed it, uh, looked up to heaven, blessed, and uh, he, he distributed to the crowds in the groups of 50. And in verse 17, we read, and they all ate. Now, in the original uh, word order in the Greek New Testament, it, is, it literally is rendered 
and they ate, pause, all, that is all of them. Luke places the word all in the emphatic position. So really you could translate this as, as, and they all ate, every single one of them. Luke is emphasizing the fact that everyone there had food, enough food, had gotten their fill. And they all ate, every single one of them. This passage concludes in verse 17. Where we we read, and what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. This is meant to communicate to the apostles that Jesus is the one who provides for them. Jesus is the one to whom they are to look to by faith. We've seen this passage, the repetition of the word 12, a a number of times to describe the apostles. They're called the 12. And so it's intentional that there were 12 baskets of remaining food. 12 baskets of remaining food for the 12 apostles. Jesus is their provider. So what this is meant to teach us is that uh, Jesus provides, he provides our daily bread. He provides for our bodily needs. So often our anxiety are not over daily provisions. They're over much more elaborate things that are off in the future. And thus there's much wisdom to Jesus' words elsewhere. He says, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Sufficient for the day is its own worries. We're going to pray for our daily bread. And Jesus is the one who provides that. Now, of course, ordinarily he doesn't do that miraculously, but even though he uses secondary causation, he still is the one who provides nonetheless. And we can be confident that as long as God is ordained to give life in our, in our uh, uh, give breath to our lungs, he will provide what we stand in need of. But we also learn from this that Jesus provides our spiritual bread, as he is indeed the bread of life. Thus, every time you hear the word, you read the word of God, your soul is being nourished with Christ himself. Every time we partake of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, we are, by the Spirit, through faith, being fed with Christ. Our souls being nourished and fed with Christ himself. This formula that we read in verse 16, where Jesus blessed and broke and gave the bread, this formula is repeated in Luke 22 in the institution of the Lord's Supper. But it's also repeated in Luke 24, the first Lord's Day of the New Covenant, where Jesus spends his first Lord's Day by teaching and preaching the word and by by blessing and breaking and distributing bread. So in this miracle, we are to be reminded that Jesus is indeed the bread of life. He's our spiritual bread. And he will not leave our souls destitute. He will preserve us in the salvation he has wrought and earned for us. That is good news. Well, brothers and sisters, we have witnessed, not only in this passage, but in in the previous passages as well, Jesus' power and authority. And we are still still, uh, looking ahead to the greatest act of Jesus' power and authority in the context of the Gospel of Luke, which will be displayed at the resurrection where Christ will prove definitively 
that he is not only a savior of his people, but the king of all the earth. So let me ask you, how will you respond to this Jesus? Let us pray.